This is a very special episode of the Stem Cell Podcast, Overcoming Obstacles in Stem Cell Research. Hey everyone, we are Drs. Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Today, we're bringing you our first ever live recording of the Stem Cell Podcast, which we hosted at the New York Stem Cell Foundation earlier this month. It's a very special episode where we had the privilege of speaking to NICEP industry leaders to gain insights into the obstacles facing the stem cell research community and some innovative solutions to overcome them. It was a great event. So let's jump right into it. Thank you so much, guys, for joining us. And also thanks to Stem Cell, the team at Stem Cell Technologies, also the team at the NICEF, who've been very generous in making the space for us and organizing this. Uh, it's an experiment, you know? It's a bit of an experiment doing this for the first time. And I mean, you guys know, when you do an experiment in the lab, you got a lot of people to sign off on it. You know, you got your Embryonic Stem Cell Research Oversight Committee. You got your IRB, Protection of Human Subjects. You know, you got your even environmental safety, everything. You gotta get sign off. Uh, Maybe for better, uh, maybe for worse, there is no podcast oversight committee. So this experiment has not been vetted. We're uh, in uncharted water here, but uh, I think we're going to have a good time, and uh, we really appreciate uh, you guys coming out to join us. Again, I want to introduce Arun Sharma, who took the red eye here, so thanks to him for making the trip. I'm good to go. I got my caffeine. Uh, I came from right across town, so it's been easy for me. Uh, how was the trip for you? You made it? Trip is good. I'm here in person, physically, mentally, spiritually. We'll find out. Um, but no, it's been great. I, this is my first time here at, at NYSEF, and just to see some of the facilities that are here, it's it just it's just mind blowing to me. I was talking to Dan about some of the automation facilities that they have on on site, and initially I just didn't believe him. <laughs> but you know, being up there and seeing what's what's in store and what you guys are doing, it's it's really inspiring. So. Can't wait to talk more. All right, uh, joining us for this experiment, we have uh, Reka Iyer, who's the VP of Scientific and DEIB Outreach. Thank you, Reka, for joining us. Also, we have Dr. Laura Andres Martin, who is a senior research investigator and leader of the NYSEF Women's Reproductive Cancers Initiative. Thank you, Laura. And finally, we have Dr. Daniel Paul, Senior VP of Discovery and Platform Development. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. All right, we're ready to get started. So just to set the stage here, I wanted to tell you about my own experience with the NYSEF. Um, approaching now 15 uh, plus years ago, I was in the inaugural full class of Druck Drucker Miller Fellows. This was uh, 2006, and it was a very different time for stem cell research. Uh, the president was George W. Bush, who presided over sweeping restrictions uh, of federally funded stem cell research. Um, there was a lot of enthusiasm about the therapeutic potential of stem cells, but I think that was balanced, maybe even overbalanced, by a, a lot of caution, a lot of uh, skepticism, um, controversy, really about the necessity for destruction of embryos in order to make patient-specific stem cells. In fact, the whole field, I think, was really fraught. Um, and not only that, but the, all the things we take for granted now, uh, the idea that stem cells could be reprogrammed to a pluripotent state from terminally differentiated state was like fringe. Uh, I think there's a lot of scientists out there, stem cell scientists even, who thought that there was no going back in time or up the Waddington diagram, so to speak. Um, and I would say more so there was consensus. The one thing everyone could, could agree on is that we needed safe places. We needed a safe haven um, where specifically the, the younger researchers who didn't have you know, their war chest built over a long scientific career, they didn't have maybe the freedom um, to explore their ideas because they were living in a world where they had to get a job, right? And they had to get funding for their research. Uh, and that's where the NICE have stepped in. The New York Stem Cell Foundation stepped into this vacuum um, with the intent of trying to create a safe space. And I can say personally for me, um, it really was a 
career-changing, world-changing uh, event uh, in my life, and it really, it, it opened me up to a new world uh, that I still carry with me today. And just with that as a backdrop, I want to start with Laura, just to, to ask you, you, you were a, a nice of Druckenmiller fellow yourself. In fact, you were uh, mentored by a nice of Druckenmiller fellow, Marco Siendel, who was in the class right after me. Um, and then you yourself became a Druckenmiller Fellow, ultimately now a uh, senior research investigator here. So you've really existed in uh, a separate generation maybe from, from mine, but you've, you've run the span in NICEF in many positions. Tell us, what uh, do you think is unique about the NICEF? Tell us about your experience and what sets this institute apart. Yeah. Thank you. Well, first, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation, you guys. And um, yeah, so I guess my example could be that a little bit of that example of how NICEF is that family that keep, keeps growing, right? Uh, I first heard about NICEF when I was a postdoc at Marcos in the lab, my first time studying stem cells. So uh, I was coming from a very different background, but always interested about it. Uh, and then um, I remember when I started in the lab, one of the first things uh, Marco asked me, you had to go to the NICEF conference, had you heard about it? And you had to apply to the fellowship, we need funding <laughs> to do this. Um, and then I was like, I don't know what is this, even though I was living in New York at that time for a while already. Um, so I attended the conference that year, that was in 2012. So it's a few, a little bit of generations after you. And then for me, it was just this sense of the innovation, the potential, and how all the community was getting there together. And you just get this vibrant, you know, spirit of how many things you can actually potentially do. And it brings you that spirit into your own work. Um, that was my first exposure, I would say, to what NICEF community is. And then as I go into this journey, more getting, you know, eventually, um, I got funded. That was not the first try. <laughs> it was after <laughs> some tries. Um, I got funded and then you get immersed even more into the other, there is the conference community, the big community, but then you get into the family actually and how everybody has not only the innovation, I was attending the retreats uh, that we have for the innovator community, the fellows, and just what these people can do, I was amazed. So it inspires you, really. Um, so it really was a changing event for me to career-wise, but also giving you that spirit or confidence that maybe I can also do things that are amazing. Maybe I can get into that point like everybody else. And then um, I got here in 2018, uh, working at NICEF now in our oncology program, Women's Reproductive Cancers. and. Um, I think we are getting there into trying to contribute to those amazing things. Yeah, so NICE have had humble beginnings, certainly, but fast forward and here we are now. NICE have is truly a powerhouse in stem cell biology, not just nationally, but internationally. And so let's talk about some of the cutting edge science that's being done here at NICEF, which is really, you know, like I said, leading the charge when it comes to stem cell biology. Um, and Dan, I alluded to this earlier when I did the introduction. One of the most exciting things I've heard about about NICEF is this automated approaches and these automated approaches that are being pioneered here. And as an outsider, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe these things were possible. I mean, we hear about a lot of this in stem cell biology is like, oh, automated this, automated that. Other folks are striving to get there, but this is the reality here at NICEF. So, um, I mean, this is the type of potential that, the type of science that has the potential to make all of our lives easier as cell biologists. But I think there's also some important aspects and important questions of how to democratize some of these technologies, which are so revolutionary and can make our lives so much easier. How do you bring those technologies to the greater community? So Dan, could you talk a little bit about how these cell culture automation technologies are making your lives, your daily lives easier here at NICEF and also maybe a little bit about how to democratize these technologies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, just to echo Laura, it's great to have you guys here on site. It's, uh, it's, it's lovely and to have this audience is great as well. Um, yeah, so uh, to the skeptical, you know, I've been here at NICEF for a long time. I started as a postdoc before the robots were even here. Uh, and I think even I was maybe a slight skeptic at the time at the beginning, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, 
but sure enough, over the past decade or so, we've really, uh, I think, built something that's quite unique and, and really stands alone, uh, especially for stem cell research, but maybe just for biology as a whole as well. So, yeah, so we've um, the, the platform that we have upstairs uh, really automates all aspects of stem cell biology. Uh, so we can go from a tube of blood or a skin biopsy, and we can put that tube of blood in one of our robots, and it will isolate the PBMCs from it. We can then put those into automated reprogramming runs where we don't have to do anything aside from put reagents on the deck or reload tips, maybe a few go into the freezer backwards and forwards. Um, but the robots really take care of, of everything in between, feeding, passaging, imaging. And there might be, you know, on any given day, a couple of hundred plates in culture. Uh, everything gets fed or passaged during the day and imaged overnight, so it runs sort of 24-7. Uh, it's, a, it's a real operation, but it's a testament also to the people that run it. There's a, there's a handful of them in the audience, but, um, you know, as much as we have robots, there's a lot of people that, that still make this, make this possible. Um, it's not just reprogramming, though. It, you know, we've, we've, over the years, rewritten things and improved things and iterated upon it to a point where we can do genome editing on the robots. We can do all these differentiations. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing platform when we stand back and, and look at it. And uh, I think one of the words that we come back to a lot with something like this is scale. I think that's something that, you know, it, generally in biology, scale is something a lot of people think about. And scale can mean a lot of different things for different people. It can mean lots of cells from any one person, maybe for a clinical therapy. Uh, but we think of scale slightly differently. We think of lots of cells in parallel. So we want to be able to make, say, take a 96 well plate and have 96 different people represented in, in each well. And so by doing that, we can get to a level of democratization in, in a few different ways. One is uh, we can actually have representation in the dish of not just any given disease, but all the different ethnicities that might be represented by that given disease. So instead of just studying three, five, 10 cell lines, and I know this is very easy for me to say this with these robots upstairs, but we can put you know 96 different people in and really start to interrogate the impacts of genetics or different, different other characteristics of, of any given individual. Uh, I think, though, you know, again, where we stand, we're, we're pretty fortunate to have to have had this, and um, we gave a little bit of a blueprint when we when we published this a, a while back. Uh, but we've begun to open source a lot of tools here as well. So uh, we have a, a fairly big data science or growing data science team, I'll say. And uh, just in the past couple of days, actually, we've uh, released a couple of open source tools based around a lot of our imaging workflows um, and and so I think it's doing things like that as we can continue to sort of innovate that way and provide things back to the community. We can, we can definitely give some level of democratization in, in that respect. And then we engage a lot with many others as well. And so it could be that um, a, a group might have done an incredible job of collecting biomaterials. Maybe they've collected a large biobank of blood specimens or skin biopsies. But they just don't have the bandwidth or really the desire to sit and reprogram them all. They want to actually be doing the differentiations and the things that will actually lead to maybe a insight into a disease. And so we can use the platform upstairs, whether it's through collaborative grants or whatever the means might be, to onboard those samples here, reprogram them, and then send them back and allow them to really you know, use their time and their efforts for doing you know, real science, if you want to call it that. I think what we do upstairs with reprogramming is real science, but you know, the, cutting, you know, the cutting edge stuff where it's going like, to represent a disease in a dish. And, and so you know, democratization probably spans all those different areas. But yeah, I think that yeah. touches on it. Doing real science, but also real good science. So <laughs> that's important. Um, one thing you alluded to there is you know, how, how the, the platform that you developed um, it can incorporate um, a diversity into the platform itself by, say, you know, representing the greater population of of mankind. And of course, we're a very diverse species. Um, you know, one big thing that's being done these days is, of course, uh, focusing on women's health in particular um, and representation of proper uh, uh, samples and induced pluripotent stem cell lines in that regard. So let's we can chat a little bit about the the women's reproductive cancer initiative here at Nice which you're leading, Laura, I um, mean, is critically important. It's focused on women's reproductive cancer, such as ovarian cancer. And if we think kind of more broadly, uh, this initiative is building on other initiatives at the federal level, right? You know, there are uh, grant and funding agencies that require researchers to address sex differences 
in their studies. You know, you have female mice included in basic science studies as a requirement these days. Um, and I'm at my own institution at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles, all the way across the country, uh, there's a massive clinical initiative focused on women's heart health. So, Rika and Laura, could you talk a little bit about the importance of having and promoting these initiatives uh, focusing on women's health and disease? And what are some of the next steps that we could take uh, for some of these initiatives at NYSA? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can I can start for the um, oncology, in particular, ovarian cancer. So that's one of the things that we we started this program in 2018. So it's actually a pretty new initiative. Um, and then um, the problem is that this ovarian cancer has been neglected uh, historically on studying it, uh, funding it, um, and we realized that innovation was not getting there for this particular cancer type for many different reasons. Um, and innovation is one of the characteristics, I guess, that we can say that we can do here is bringing state-of-the-art technologies uh, utilizing the latest of stem cells technologies to do this. So um, in this case, what we do is to have a personalized approach to model the disease. Um, we actually do this by um, getting tumor samples specifically from each patient on, you know, they get surgery, it gets to us. Um, so we can not only grow that patient's specific tumor, but also if you have different tumors with, with ovarian cancer that happens in more than 80% of the patients, they are completely metastasized everywhere. You can actually also grow every different tumor from different sites, which is very important for treating diseases that are in that advanced stage. Um, this is based on technology that is, uh, it was uh, created for growing adult stem cells, actually, so we don't really have to manipulate anything, and that's the beauty of the system. Um, they just do what they are supposed to do in the dish. They recapitulate the tumor completely, molecularly speaking, but also um, another of the beautiness of this system is that you can put drugs on these tumors. And so far, preliminary evidence for a few drugs is that they can also recapitulate the responses of those patients in the clinic. So now we can take an approach where we not only are creating collections that represents every individual patient and every individual tumor, so that leads to creating genetic associations as well when you have a large collection, large enough, but also you can actually personalize treatments and tailor those treatments to specific tumors, and eventually we would like to get there. Um, so that makes as to be accelerating things in many different ways because this is focused on women, uh, which there is little focus for many different angles, as you were saying, but also we are advancing like an approach that is cutting edge on the precision oncology space by bringing these technologies as a proof of concept for this cancer type, and we would like to extend that later to other women's cancers uh, in the future. Yeah, I, I just want to underscore the tech emphasis in at the NYSEF Research Institute is really unique in my view. I mean, maybe all you guys in the room know this from being upstairs, but you listeners uh, at home maybe don't. You go upstairs here and it's, you know, you know what a science lab looks like, a stem cell lab for the most part, but you, you walk into the, the corners here and there of the labs upstairs and you see like computers broken down to the bits. You know, you see all these elements that I never saw in a traditional research lab. And I think what, what jumps out at me is that we got a bunch of tinkers here in the building and also this really ground up approach, right? Where they're, they're building the, the things and then they gotta build the solutions to the thing they're building in this constant recursive iterative fashion over the course of over a decade to arrive at this point with the machine. So I, just to underscore, it's a different approach where you gotta get all these different type of experts in here that I think is really a model to look toward. And at the end of the day, uh, the upshot is, right, it's, it's therapies for all, right? We wanna be able to treat all the different, all the diversity of human beings and all their diseases. Um, but also, Reka, you know, here at the NYSEP, there's another point of emphasis. It's not just therapies for all, but it's science, doing science for all scientists and all types. And I think that type of, 
inclusive approach. It has to be very deliberate. We live in these insulated silos where, for the most part, we're looking across the bench at people that are very much like us. And I think that's something that really needs to change in our field, in every field, um, but really in fields that are focused on treating people, right? Because there's all these types of people. Reka, speak to that. How, how, do you, how do you guys, what's the philosophy in terms of DIB and how do you, how do you make it happen? Uh, not just here at the Institute, but how do you extend that influence beyond the NISA? Well, I'll, I'll be the third to uh, echo my gratitude and excitement for this event. And, you know, it's been so long in the planning, so I'm really great, grateful that you guys are here. Um, so, you know, uh, these are really great questions. I think diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, or DIB as we uh, shorten it here at NICIF, is, is really something that we've considered mission critical um, from the get-go. And that comes from, you know, our founding CEO, Susan Solomon, who recognized that, you know, we're not going to meet our mission, NICIF's mission, you know, as a nonprofit, as a patient-focused nonprofit, is to accelerate treatments and cures for the major diseases of our time using stem cell research. And we can't go as fast as we need to go unless we have all of the greatest minds able to contribute to these formidable challenges um, before us. And, you know, we like to think that science is a meritocracy, but that is certainly not the case um, because of things like systemic discrimination and the biases that we all sort of carry around. So, you know, we embed that into our approach in a lot of ways. Um, we've talked about, you know, NICEF having this kind of um, unique role in the ecosystem that what we like to have is, is really just as an accelerator and to kind of identify these unmet needs that we can address. So, you know, the Women's Reproductive Cancers Initiative is an excellent example of that. You know, ovarian cancer receives about 20 times less funding than, you know, equivalent male reproductive cancers when you adjust for mortality and incidence. Um, huge unmet need. And that's, that's why we don't see the benefits of precision medicine being realized in diseases like ovarian cancer. We also, you know, uh, we were talking about health equity and you know, we most of what we understand about biology and disease and therapies comes from studies of white European males. Um, so our understanding of what disease is or even what health is, is incredibly skewed and incredibly biased. And so there are, you know, we're not serving all of the patients who need treatments. And that's, you know, again, uh, part of our mission as an organization. So this is one major area that we take it on is in the research uh, lens is, you know, how can we advance inclusive uh, biological research? And one aspect of this is really, you know, an intense focus right now on building out the ethnic diversity of the biobank of uh, stem cell lines that we've created as a community resource, again, you know, sort of to accelerate um, progress throughout the community um, and through initiatives like the uh, Women's Reproductive Cancers and through the research that we do in our own labs here to say, like, how can we include more ethnically and ancestrally diverse um, cell lines that have been so systematically marginalized out of participation. And there's, you know, that's very complex reasons as to why that's the case. But one way that we think we can make an impact is just by, you know, having those lines represented so that the discoveries we make pertain to the populations that need them. In terms of the workforce, um, you know, we, it's, it's of course important that, you know, all of these great minds out there who have merit, who have you know, brilliance are able to contribute to making the field move forward. And so we we focus on that in a few different ways. Um, one is through our events and communication. So things like this, really just raising awareness about the issues that, you know, the bias is very well alive here, um, you know, and we're, all of us have privileges that we are blinded to, you know, I'm, I'm a woman of color, so I can see what happens to women of color, but I am also a white passing, you know, hetero um, native English speaker. So I get a lot of benefits um, from that that, you know, make it hard for me to see uh, what my colleagues not in those categories um, have to endure every day. And when people are not able to bring their authentic selves to work every day and to feel included, you know, they're going to be that much less productive. And so even if you just look at it from a completely pragmatic point of view, um, you know, in, in addition to be, it being the right thing to do, you, we, we need to change the way that we're doing this. We have a lot of things that we need to dismantle. And so one of the ways we take that on as well is through our grant making 
um, through the Nysip Drucker Miller Fellowships, through the Nysip Robertson um, Investigator Awards, we've been really intentional about changing the way that we do the selection process to elevate minoritized scientists who are not getting as much of a chance and who have overcome undue hardships to get where they are. Um, and to reward those scientists who are fighting this fight, who are going out of their way to be advocates and to create a better world for all of us, because that is the community of the future, and that's that's what we're uh, really trying to build here. So let's talk actually a little bit more about that. I mean, I think it's the timing is pretty good. You you mentioned um, how nice of supports um, internal and external investigators through the Drucker Miller Fellowship and also the Robertson Fellowship Program. I mean, it's no secret that I mean I'm a junior investigator. It's tough to be a junior investigator these days because you know funding pay lines are not so great. Um, you know, you always stress about getting your first major research grant, federal grant, and we've all seen that graphic of how you know your first R1 these days is delayed into your 40s and I'm just freaking out right now um, but I, I think you know NYSEF has as you alluded to you've definitely done your part to, to aid junior investigators not just internally but externally um, and in addition to these fellowships which are so prominent what else are you doing to, to support that next generation and cultivate that next generation of scientists and I think we can open this up to, to everybody so Dan I don't know if you want to start yeah. Um, I think in a few different ways, um, you know, we, I think as you guys have very kindly said, we have a pretty unique resource upstairs. Uh, it's surrounded by PIs that run pretty amazing labs here. Um, but for, a you know, an undergraduate, someone that's just left their undergraduate degree to come in and train in an environment like this, I think is pretty exciting. They get exposed to, maybe they have to go and work with our software developers, or maybe they have to go and work with our engineers or our data scientists. And so... At that sort of, you know, freshly coming out of school, to have that instant exposure to those kinds of things then gives them a whole new grounding for like making them think about the career trajectory they want to take. Maybe they came in here thinking, I want to be a biologist. And all of a sudden, they have a lot of fun working with our uh, product management team or our software developers. And they're like, actually, maybe I want to go and do that. And so I think we're helping you know helping people think about like what they what they want to do by exposing them to an awful lot of a lot of different things uh you know we do a lot where at a very different level we bring and we go out to different schools we might bring a school group in here or we might go and teach a class at a an elementary school or a or a high school and again begin to expose them to science that maybe they've read about, maybe they've heard about, or maybe they really haven't. And they haven't thought about like what a stem cell is and what, what it might be able to do. And if you can invigorate and, and sort of inspire people at that age is, you know, that's pretty exciting. We've had, we've had people come back to us after we, you know, maybe they came through on a tour one year and they've come back and said that was really inspirational and it made me think about what I want to go and do in college and things like that. And so if we can continue to do those things, I think that will help foster the next the next generation of scientists. So, you know, there's a, there's a couple of like, like different ways we do it. Yeah. I, I do want to emphasize what Dan was saying about uh, inspiration, right? Because I think that's the key to make people being successful, right? You inspire them and it's like, oh, I want to, even if it's like, I want to be like you or something like that, right? And I want to also uh, point out about, um, want to go back on the other events that we do, like, you know, in the conference and from my own experience, even going to different conferences and how you start paying attention to the diversity in there, for instance, it's just something that is stand out. And you go to an event or a conference and you see speakers that are from diverse backgrounds, women, men, diverse ethnicities that are balanced on that organic. It's just it start to run in your head how, you know, I love coming here maybe because of that. And I think exposing, exposing to that kind of environment um, is also creating the mindset for people to start thinking about this should be even more important and we should all be thinking about this. Yeah, I think that's right. And with our events, you know, we do we do try to use our role as a convener to showcase um, diverse talent, to showcase um, diverse voices, to 
really help to, um, you know, correct some of the uh, preconceptions that all of us have, um, even, you know, those of us from minoritized groups of what a scientist looks like, of what success looks like, of what good leadership looks like. Um, that can look like a lot of different ways. And bringing a lot of those perspectives together is, you know, one of the things that we take really seriously for our events. Um, in the broader community, you know, I think a lot of the emphasis that we put into, um, into DEIB in our selection process um, helps to build a community that is attentive to, th to these issues and helps to build a community that, um, you know, really advocates to, uh, to fight, fight for correcting the course that, we're, that we've been on. Um, and so we do programming at our annual retreats and at our annual conference really dedicated to issues around DEIB to make sure that, you know, there is that engagement. Um, internally at NYSA, if you know, um, there are also, uh, you know, a few different things that we do. Um, we have affinity groups that are dedicated to, uh, you know, supporting minoritized scientists from particular identities. And these are really, you know, kind of formed and, uh, and, and driven by more junior staff to give them a voice in, you know, sort of what is it that we can be doing better? Because, you know, in leadership, we don't always know. There's obviously some things that we don't, we don't see. And so it's, it's really important that it has to be a kind of top-down and bottom-up um, sort of approach. We're fortunate that it has been, you know, top-down from the get-go, as I said, with, uh, you know, with, with Susan driving so much of this. Um, but it is also really um, bottom-up, and we like to, you know, just make sure that all voices can be heard as we try to make the most inclusive environment possible. Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned Susan. You know, I don't know that anybody knew, knows better what it's like to be an outsider, or knew better, sadly, uh, what it was like to be an outsider and to break into something and, and change the game, so to speak. Susan Solomon, you talked about the, the, the top-down leadership. She really invented it, you could say. Um, you know, media mogul turned scientific force with no formal training, really one of a kind. I uh, was... Uh, lucky enough to be at her memorial, uh, which was a sad occasion, but also closed the loop for me. Um, I really encourage everyone listening at home and in the room, if you haven't already, to check out that memorial service uh, online. It's posted at the NYSIF website because it's not only touching, but it really, I think, illustrates in all the tributes to her why she was such a force. Um, and I think it is because she was an outsider and, and she brought all these people together. I mean, I recall vividly thinking, wow, there's Elaine Fuchs, the biggest deal in science, a row ahead of me. And there's Martha Stewart, the biggest deal in something else, maybe everything, uh, row behind me. I mean, it is a real confluence of two totally different worlds that maybe she's one uniquely qualified to serve as a bridge uh, between, but I thought more than anything, the tribute from her son, Ben Goldberger, really underscored and put, put it all together for me about what kind of a person she was. And this is broadcast, a family-friendly show, so I'm going to paraphrase what he says. Um, but essentially in describing why his mother, what he thought, why his mother was so successful was her anthem, her, her, her you know, motto which was, I'm gonna to defer to the producers here, screw them, except instead of screw, <laughs> the F word. Um, <laughs> and that's what she'd say, you know? If someone say, you know, you can't do this, screw them. Uh, her say, your son can't do this, Ben would say, ah, screw them, do whatever you want. Um, and I think that that maybe, I don't know, you guys can fill this in, maybe that's in the DNA of the NYSIF. Uh, I want you guys to talk about that from your respective positions of authority and expertise in the NYSEF Research Institute, how does that anthem manifest in what you're doing? Starting with you, Dan, like what is it yeah. about the world saying you can't and then you guys are yeah. saying screw them? I, I, you know, and just to preface that, I think one of the other reasons that she was so incredible is that it was very deeply personal. Like it was, you know, so much of what established NYSEF in the first place was born out of trying to find better treatments. And in her case, it, it was for her, her child and to find better uh, treatments for diabetes. Um, and that's a, that's a, you know, we talk about that story a lot still today and, and try to, to try to retain the, those sorts of values. Um, but you can see <laughs> we're in this building because of Susan. Uh, you can, but you can see it all, all around you. Um, 
if we talk about the robots, just because that's so personal to me, um, the only reason that exists is because after getting you know grants and things turned down that that like did go out to try and seek the funding to build that platform upstairs a decade ago people thought that that was insane and like you could never do this you could never bring this kind of scale of technology to something like you know stem cell biology and so in that classic way she said okay well let's find another way and we'll go out and we'll use philanthropy and that underpins so much of what we do here we are incredibly lucky to have an incredible funding base that is philanthropically driven and it was you know effectively seed money for building that upstairs that triggered the growth and the development of that platform and you know it needs a figurehead like Susan to be able to go, able to go out and inspire someone to you know write that kind of check that can that can do that kind of work um, it then takes her you know she inspired a lot of people then to build that technology that that doesn't happen by itself upstairs it, it requires someone inspiring you to work through all the times it doesn't work until eventually it does and um as much as like you know no was not an answer it, you know you couldn't say no to susan because she would turn around and go well why not <laughs> and uh and again that's that's why so much of of what upstairs exists she was a true force of nature she was just incredible um yeah you know many of us would not be in these none of us would be in these seats today i don't think if it hadn't hadn't been for her i think the you know the way that i try to remember her legacy and where the way that it played out for me over the last five years when i had the privilege to work with her was you know she was just so prescient at noticing and identifying obstacles um, you know, because she was just so determined to go as fast as she could. And like others have said, that's because of her, you know, it was personal for her. It's a, it was a, a passion project. And so she could really pinpoint what, what an obstacle was. So she very quickly understood the obstacle of reproducibility and said, we need robots. She very quickly understood the, uh, the obstacle of people working in silos in stem cell research in the early days and said, we need a community. She very quickly understood the obstacle of inequity and said, well, we need, you know, we need an equity initiatives. We need to fix this because I, I just, you know, we're not moving fast enough. We're just not moving fast enough. And she just had so much tenacity um, in removing those obstacles. That's the, you know, not taking no for an answer and, you know, possibilize it. Like if it's not possible, possibilize it. Um, and, and I think that is what you know, that passion and that drive is something that carries on in so much of what we do um, at NYSIF across the, you know, the communications, the events across, you know, grants across like, you know, the, I'm speaking to things that I, I work on primarily. It's just, you know, go, 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 do, give it all you got, like make it happen. And, um, you know, uh, the last piece I'll say that she really inspired me with personally is just leading with empathy. Um, I had never worked with a female boss before um, I came to NYSIF and you know I, she taught a whole different sort of leadership style she'd be like how are you is everything okay you don't look like you're okay are you okay have you seen this show it's really funny it'll make you laugh and you know I, I I'd never even had a conversation like that with a boss before and so I think that that just speaks to the kind of culture of the family that we've been talking about where you know we're also taking care of each other Yes. <laughs> what what else to add, right? But um, I think like she was just the vision, right? She will came and say, we need to do this. And then maybe because she was an outsider, that's the key because us maybe thinking about all the steps that it's going to take to get there, you will tell yourself, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then... I can like visualize her just saying sadly I'm putting this face like why not? <laughs> like why not? I, I I mean I wish like because that was the expression and then you start thinking because and no, just what do we need to do? Establish the steps. And the other thing is about family driven, uh, because you are the family and it's like you will do this part, take care of this, other people of the team will take care of another thing. Or if we need the innovators community, the stem cell community to come help with this problem, we bring whoever is needed. So she will like convey all the best experts in the world 
or whatever in the family asking everywhere and like you know you should not have a problem to uh, even if you don't know someone doesn't matter you go to the door knock and like hey um i have this problem i heard about you what you do um can we work together to make this happen right so i think all that like translates into you thinking okay well let's try because actually you don't try that was not an option um and then uh you know for the women's reproductive cancers initiative actually she it was that personal to her obviously uh she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2017 and uh i remember her tenacity when she announced this actually i it was the year before i joined nicef um as a scientist at nicef uh we were on the innovators retreat she is standing the podium you could see clearly she was undergoing a treatment um but she was i'm good i'll fight this and she was literally there like her diagnosis was only few months back and you could see her with the same spirit right um and then that's when facing her own disease and she realized are you treating this with chemotherapy still like still there is nothing else that works um so she educated herself to the point where she could like give a lecture not only on ovarian cancer by the way she will like give a lecture on stem cells technologies like anybody any of us uh really even in her background as we said in the beginning was an outsider a lawyer which i learned this again going back to my story in 2012 uh i googled who she was because i'm like who is this person and sarah <laughs> and it's a lawyer i was like mm, interesting but i, I mean <laughs> And then I faced it over the years what NICEF is or the stem cell community that was built is. And I'm like, how is this possible, right? But maybe that's the trick, right? To bring different minds from different backgrounds, expertise, the arrays and example as well. There is scientists, there is engineers, there is artificial intelligence people now. And we all together face problems differently because your background maybe give you a different mindset to face those problems, right? So that community really bringing it together made things to happen. Um, and to close up on this again, uh, back to her personal story with ovarian cancer and how she literally had to face it that personal and say, no, I don't want this to be like this for the next few years and if it's not for me for the rest of women diagnosed with this uh cancer we need to do something uh so what's the latest and that's when i came in here and we just went to the latest stem cell based technology and we built or we are building this platform to try to accelerate novel treatments because that's what really we need for uh for this disease um hoping that one day we will do that and this hope is had to be a yes because there is no <laughs> as an answer so we we will get there yeah you uh we've been talking about how how personal it was or the journey began for her uh, from a very personal place with her son and diabetes and then her own struggle with ovarian cancer but um then kind of it expanded right i mean you guys all became her family it was her immediate family then it was her nice family and now it's like all of us the humankind in terms of the scope of her interest and in, in trying to address disease and, and you guys are pushing it along uh here at the nice research institute um the end game obviously is to translate these therapies right but that's like a huge lift uh, the resources you need NICEF is nimble and, and, you know, really effective in, in their approach, but you need such a different scale of resources to, to take this into humans and in the multiple stages of trials, et cetera. Um, where are you with that and what's uh, the, the horizon look like? Yeah, I, Dan, I'll, I'll, I'll take, I'll take part. I'll take it first. Um, so <laughs> yeah. So how do we go from, um, a stem cell model of a disease to having uh, maybe a therapy that is actually going to treat, prevent, cure a given disease. Uh, we've touched on it 
uh, a couple of times. I think it's it's we're going to do it in a few different ways. One of them is that we need to bring, as Laura sort of said, lots of different backgrounds together, and those are not just uh, of, of people's different personal backgrounds, but technical backgrounds. And so one of the things we do here, is, as Laura said, is bring together these engineers that might be computer engineers, they might be mechanical engineers, uh, biologists coming from genome editing backgrounds, from disease modeling backgrounds, from completely unrelated biology backgrounds. And then combining that as well with uh, data scientists, uh, software developers, you name it. If you bring people of just different technical abilities together, really incredible things can happen. Um, and so for us on, on sort of working on, on the platform upstairs, you know, we're thinking about how do you uh, improve the modeling, the detection of a given disease um, so that you can have better readouts or not better, new readouts, things that are just going to maybe give insights into a disease that we haven't had before. And again, combine that with scale, combine that with us being able to stratify across individuals or different, different ethnicities. Maybe then as well, we can start, you know, in some of the screening work we're doing, maybe you can start to uncover that a given drug is going to be better for people uh, of this ethnicity or they carry this risk variant. And that the way you're approaching treating drugs right now by starting a trial and just recruiting a whole group of patients and hoping that that drug will work. I'd see maybe we need to rethink about how we're structuring clinical trials and that if we could better predict that a molecule that we have in development is going to really only target this subset of people, well, maybe we need to recruit that subset of people so that then the trial might work. It's a smaller you know, target that you're going to hit, but it's a true clinical, then you've, then you've met a, a need. Um, you obviously hope that maybe you're going to uncover better therapeutics that will you know, work across all individuals. But unless we're testing on all individuals, we're going to, as Reika sort of said at the beginning, if we're only testing on a couple of different individuals, that's not going to give us the representation of, of everybody here. Uh, so that's, that's sort of one approach from a, from a uh, sort of a screening perspective to some extent. Uh, obviously, the one that I think most people tend to drift toward when they think of stem, cell uh, stem cells are, are therapies using stem cells or their derivatives. And so uh, we're seeing an incredible time in uh, therapies reaching the clinic. Uh, we've got people in the audience that are really leading the charge on this that have been able to go into patients in the past couple of years, whether it's for Parkinson's disease, whether it's for uh, AMD, whether it's for, um, uh, I'm struggling to think of another one, but there are many more. Um, and so we've embraced that here as well. I think one of the things that's very challenging in the in the stem cell therapy space is access to things as sim simple as uh, clean rooms. To be able to generate cells for uh, a therapy, they have to be generated, you know, I'm sure many of your audience know this, but generated in these ultra clean environments, these GMP qualified facilities, and there just aren't enough of them. It's it's very challenging to find enough space to be able to move move things forward through a phase one or a phase two phase two trial. And so upstairs, you know, beside our labs, beside the robots, beside everything else, there's a GMP space up there. And so we're embarking on a clinical trial in macular degeneration, um, working with you know institutions around the city, so that we can, again, translate all of the work that we've been doing here over the past 15 years and actually then begin to reach, reach the patient as well. If I could add one thing to that. Um, you know, the other, the other piece of it, uh, aside from all these internal things that we've built, as Dan mentioned, is that, you know, we, we are here to collaborate. So we've collaborated with, I think, over 100 organizations in the last couple of years. And the nimble, agile sort of approach we take also pertains to our collaborations. You know, so we, we collaborate with every kind of organization possible, um, especially like those who are going to help us to uh, translate the ideas that are being developed here. So um, that also pertains to everyone in the audience <laughs> and, and anyone listening, you know, we're, we're very open to that. So please do uh, get in touch if you're interested. Yeah, I've said it a million times on the, the podcast. I think we're in the midst of a golden age 
in biomedical research and in particular in, in stem cell biology, which is enabled by many of the technologies that NICEF is pushing forward and the community is pushing forward, um, the how easy it is to collaborate these days across the world, across the country. Um, and these technologies are ultimately enabling clinical translation, which is the goal of many people in this particular audience. And on that particular topic, I know the NICEF you know, has, a, has a particular conference very focused on clinical translation and translational stem cell research. Um, Reka, do you wanna talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so this is going to be the 18th annual conference that we're putting on this October uh, 23 and 24 at the Rockefeller University, just across town here in Manhattan. Um, and this is, you know, we focused on translational stem cell research from the get-go. I think the conference was one of the very first activities NYSEF ever did. Um, and it was really, you know, to continue that work of breaking down the silos, enabling the collaborations, the discourse, the ideas, um, covering the hottest topics of the day, um, like, you know, organoids, cell therapies. Um, we'll talk about drug discovery this year, diversifying stem cell biobanks and the challenges uh, surrounding that. Um, so more is on our website. We'd love to have all of you in the audience come. Um, it's nysif.org slash conference, nyscf.org slash conference. Um, and our call for abstract is still open. If you register by August 30th, we're actually happy to offer a discount code for those of you in the audience um, using the code uh, all lowercase stem cell pod, S-T-E-M-C-E-L-L. P-O-D. Yeah, that's a nod to you guys. So. <laughs> but we hope to see many of you there. You know, it's it has the advantage that it's kind of a single track uh, sort of a thing. We try not to, you know, we love ISSCR, but it can get a little overwhelming trying to be in yeah, 17 right. rooms at once. I don't know how you guys did your podcast episodes every day there. That was a tour de force. But um, but yeah, ours is, uh, you know, just a, a, a little bit smaller. So, um, you know, hopefully that that enables those connections. Not smaller more intimate. Ooh, okay, okay, yes. We'll take that. <laughs> but seriously, uh, I will say that the, one of the, the great things about the NYSIF is how small the community is, although it's grown much larger since like 100 years ago when I was a Drucker Miller fellow, but the, the, the community remains small and tight-knit. And uh, to this day, I go to the ISSCR and I find I'm hanging out with all the Drucker Miller alums and just, you know, having a laugh. And I think that's the, the kind of safe space that's been created at the NYSEF, which is really appealing to me and probably mo many others. Um, so yeah, I mean, this has been really terrific. Uh, uh, a lot of fun, a bit of an experiment. Hopefully they won't need to initiate a podcast oversight committee after this, <laughs> hoping it's not <laughs> too big of a debacle. But um, in the interest of trying to share some thoughts and get some uh, feedback from the audience, uh, we have some time in the last 10 minutes or so if anybody wants to ask any questions, preferably not of me. Ask some questions of these, <laughs> these guys over here. They've got all the answers. Is, is there anybody? So I guess the, the title of this was Overcoming Obstacles in Stem Cell Research. What maybe the biggest obstacle for NYSEF specifically? Just to uh, repeat the question for the audience at home, the question was, given that the title of this entire audio experience is overcoming obstacles. Have we not talked enough about the obstacles we're overcoming? <laughs> he didn't exactly put it that way, but I think that was the question behind the question. So I put it to you guys. What are the biggest obstacles? I mean, feel free. Each one of you guys would be lovely if each one of you could weigh in in your respective expertise. Okay, great. I can start. Um, the, I, I would say the obstacle that I'm probably most focused on that, you know, I think NYSEF is well positioned to address is the inequity in uh, biomedical research, both in the, um, you know, the patients that we're trying to serve and in the, uh, in the workforce that's contributing to making those discoveries. So um, that is why we're doing all that we do in, in, in that regard. So, um, yeah. Well, I guess um, what I can say is accelerating things, moving things faster uh, by bringing this community together. Actually, um, again, we go back to this idea of teamwork. Um, one plus one is two. And I think that realized also for advancing these technologies because you can brainstorm together, do things faster. And then at NYSEF specifically, I think the fact that we can do these technologies because of, you know, the funding can be restrictive 
in tra traditional sources. So philanthropy has allowed actually to move these things faster than it would have been without that. So I think we should also um, give the importance of what it has. Uh, the, the, uh, where to begin? There are there are there are a <laughs> number of different obstacles, and it it can vary from very minute things. I wish that uh, manufacturers of equipment would make better APIs so we could like <laughs> hook things in easier. You know, very niche request. Um, I think I think in in bigger, more practical things, um, it's a problem for us. But but. Maybe I'm going to turn this a little bit to the field as well. And there's two things. One is accessibility. And so, you know, yes, it's great that we have the robots upstairs. We're very fortunate. It is expensive and it is challenging at a technical level to do this unless you have the technical expertise. We really need to kind of break those barriers down so that more labs can bring robots in and, and scale their research. It can't just be a privileged few here and there that, that have the ability to do that. Uh, the other one I think is is going to be or the other again there are many one other one is uh, is scale, and a different kind of scale than I mentioned earlier. But if we're going to make uh, therapies accessible to everybody, we're going to have to lower the price of making material in the first place. Like these these are expensive treatments. They're some sometimes bespoke. If you look at like the CAR T space, but in the stem cell space, you know the trials right now. Um, require patients to go on immune suppression for the most part. And so um, how will that, you know, how that bears out, we'll see over, over the coming years. Uh, but if we can get to a point where we're making stem cell therapies that are personal, again, we're gonna have to lower the cost and the ability to do that. And, and even the scale, like even if you wanna go to a, a stage two clinical trial, to generate enough material for this is going to be enormously challenging. And so it's gonna take, you know, maybe automation, it's gonna take, Technology leaps to be able to get to these points, let alone phase three and actually delivering this as like standard products off the shelf. There are some enormous challenges to, to still overcome in that, in that space. You're making me kind of bummed out then. Well, <laughs> at the same time, let's, okay, let's turn it around then. Uh, it is very exciting that we're even here talking about the fact that there are therapies in the first place in trials right now. I think, I think, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It is tremendously exciting that we're going to have, you know, that we have dopaminergic neurons being injected into brains that might actually prevent the progression of Parkinson's disease. That is, the fact that we're talking about that is pretty mind-blowing, like, from, from where we've come over the past 10 years. But it is a real problem that we want to make this accessible to as many patients as possible. And, you know, yes, it's a little sad that, that is the side of it, but we need to be thinking about that now so we can be building the technology now to meet those needs in another five, 10 years time, whatever it might be. I want to be clear. I was joking. I'm not bummed okay. at all. <laughs> I'm excited. Um, <laughs> and truth, it echoes what Laura was telling me before, which is that she was saying we fail hard, we fail early. And I think that's the key. The fact that you have a long list of grievances I think is where we want to be, you know? It's not that you're pessimistic, it's that you've seen it all. You've seen all the, the stumbling blocks and some, sometimes overcome them, sometimes not, but at least we know, you know, all the unknown unknowns, not all, but enough of the unknown unknowns are, have been elucidated for progress. So I'm excited. I hope we're all excited. <laughs> Dan's upset, but. <laughs> I have my grievances. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, back to the floor, anybody else, uh, any questions? I got a comment here. We introduced this as an experiment, right? And so, uh, as scientists uh, in the office, we would this is a great experiment, right? As, as a reviewer, we request, you know, a repeat experiment <laughs> of this life, life experience. A good How point. many revisions? Yes, is it reproducible? We'll have to see. You guys can invite us back. We'd um, love to have you back. Thank you. It's be our pleasure. Well, with that, uh, that brings us to the end of our show, this first inaugural in-person live stem cell podcast recording. Um, you know, it was really great. I think th this is a successful experiment, in my opinion. Uh, it was really interesting to hear about the technology, the community, and what you're doing to address 
equity in your community as well. Um, and also just from a personal level, you know, as somebody from the faraway land of California who is not as familiar with what NYSEF is doing, it was really touching to hear about Susan Solomon's influence in your lives and her influence on NYSEF and the greater stem cell community. Um, she's certainly missed, absolutely. So thank you so much to NYSEF. Thank you so much to Stem Cell Technologies for supporting this event. Uh, thank you to our panelists and thank you to our audience for joining us and making this such a wonderful experience. Thank you so much. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of our first live recording of the Stem Cell Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. This was such a great event and we're hoping to do more like it. So stay tuned and maybe we'll see you next time live and in person. <laughs>